Welcome to Breast Cancer Update Nurses Edition, focusing on HER2 positive disease. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Ms. Joan Armstrong to chat about patients in her practice, and she began by providing some perspective of this critical disease subset of HER2 positive breast cancer. She actually is a school teacher and has been very active and continued to work up until about eight months ago. And really what's limited her ability to work, unfortunately, has been her CNS symptoms and relapse of her CNS disease, which has caused her to be more symptomatic. But we've been able to successfully treat her really She's had some toxicity, but really relatively low toxicity treatment for a very long time. And I think in her situation, we've done a good job of maintaining her quality of life and allowing her to do the things that she wanted to do, which was work, travel with her family, see her kids grow up. Her son is going to graduate from high school. Her daughter's in college. And so we've definitely allowed her to have quality time that she never would have before with the targeted therapies we've been able to use in combination with her chemotherapy. And it's amazing, as you say, she looks like has been followed for metastatic disease now since 2004. There was actually a report at the ASCO meeting about how long lines of therapy people with breast cancer receive. And what they showed was that the patients with HER2 positive disease tend to receive more lines of therapy, four, five, six, stretching out over the last few years. And I guess part of that is the continuation of anti-HER therapy sort of indefinitely. Absolutely. She's had a couple of fairly long intervals of time where she actually hasn't been on chemotherapy. She was on trastuzumab alone. There was a period of time where she was also on lapatinib. And so we've been able to keep her off of chemotherapy for good long stretches of time, which I think just improves her quality of life because she doesn't have chemotherapy toxicities. What are some of the modalities she's received and that you all have utilized in terms of treatment of CNS METs? Well, a couple of things which have been different in her situation, and this was partially her choice. She elected not to have whole brain radiation. When she presented, she had a solitary lesion, and we very often, for these patients who present with a solitary lesion, will surgically resect it if it's feasible. And most of the time, although none of this is standard, we don't know what to do. So she had it surgically resected and then received stereotactic radiotherapy as opposed to whole brain radiation. It's hard to know if that's impacted her relapse in her CNS because she's had a couple of episodes now where she's relapsed and she's actually been retreated and had a second excision because of the area where she relapsed. And I would say that that's not typical, but I think that it's allowed her to avoid having her whole brain radiated, which was very important to her from a cognitive function perspective because she was very concerned about having whole brain radiation and how that was going to affect her ability to teach and function as opposed to just having more targeted therapies. And I have had a couple of other patients who we've treated in a similar fashion where they have a solitary lesion, it's resected, and we try to really manage it more with focal treatment as opposed to you know radiating their whole brain and hoping for the best, because for a lot of patients that doesn't turn out very well in terms of cognitive function. You know, I'm curious, it's kind of hard to know in an individual patient, there's so many things that might be going on, treatments, et cetera. But do you think that you're able to sort of discern a clinically negative impact of whole brain radiation on cognition? Yeah, I think it's so hard to tell because patients are so very different and individuals are so different in how they respond 
What was her sort of life situation? You knew her when she was diagnosed with metastatic disease for the first time? So I actually met her in 2006. So we were not her initial treating medical oncologist. We met her after she had received some therapy, and then she transferred her care to us because her physician actually had left the institution. So I've known her for a long time, not from the very beginning, but for quite a long time. When you first met her in 2006... She already had metastatic disease. How did you assess sort of her psychosocial environment? Right. So when we first met her, it was interesting because she had very much an approach of, I want to be very aggressive with this treatment. And, you know, when we treat the metastatic patients, we're really looking at improving their quality of life and extending their life, trying to get away from treating it aggressively or treating for cure because that's not our intent. And we struggled somewhat in the beginning with her accepting our approach may have been a little bit different than her previous treating oncologist. She has, you know, her husband who has been a great support and her daughter who often comes to her appointments with her, but she very much was the person who was in charge. And it took us a little while when we eventually made a decision to stop chemo and continue trastuzumab, took us a little while to convince her that we actually thought that that was the right thing to do because emotionally it was difficult for her to let go of chemo because she felt like the targeted therapy was less aggressive. And what's her current situation? So her current situation, she's unfortunately relapsed again in her brain in the same area where she had surgical resection, and she's now back on chemotherapy. So in an effort to try to attempt to control her CNS disease, she's back on chemotherapy along with trastuzumab, which she's been on trastuzumab really almost this entire time, except for some period of time when she was off, when she was being treated with lapatinib. How did she do in lopatinib? And what do you say to patients about to begin lopatinib? What are some of the patient education issues? Right. So she actually had a little bit of a rough time on lopatinib. And interestingly, even on lopatinib, so she was not on lopatinib in combination with chemotherapy the most recent time. She was on it in combination with trastuzumab. She had a lot of dizziness and GI upset and diarrhea. And I think that that's pretty typical. And I'm always very cautious, especially when we're starting lapatinib in combination with capecitabine, to make sure that the patient understands what the potential side effects are and making sure that they're going to contact me so that I can intervene soon. And I think that that's the biggest problem. People go home with their prescription and they start taking their medication and they have diarrhea or they have nausea and vomiting and they don't contact me until I see them three weeks later. And then they're behind the eight ball. So I think to be sure that we're really educating patients really well when we first start the therapy. What do you advise patients in terms of timing of lopatinib and capecitabine related to food? Right. So that's the other struggle is they're supposed to be given differently. And I really try to suggest that they follow the directions as best they can, but realizing that that may actually affect patients' adherence, where, you know, it's just easier to pop the pills all at once and not worry about, do I eat? Do I not eat with this one? But we really do try. And I like to try to give patients written information so that they can go back to look at it when they get home and say, okay, now what did she say about when to take the capecitabine? What did she say about when to take the lapatinib? Now, this lady sounds like she's very involved with her care, intelligent. I'm guessing, is she out there on the internet trying to get information? So I would say if she is, less so than what she maybe would tell me as opposed to other patients. 
I don't find that she's often the kind of person who comes in and says, okay, you know, I read this online, what do I do now about this? As opposed to lots of other patients who do that a lot, where I had a patient just last week who was HER2 negative, asked me about TDM1, because they heard it on the news, they got on the internet and wanted more information. And that sort of does lead into new agents and anti-HER therapy and the two that we've heard a lot about, one, TDM1, the antibody drug conjugate that you just mentioned, but also the HER2 dimerization inhibiting antibody pertuzumab that was just approved by the FDA. Have discussions about experimental agents like these come up with this lady? So they have, and unfortunately, because of her CNS disease, she's not been eligible for us to consider sending her for clinical trials because her CNS disease has really been the issue. The other thing we struggle with is many times those patients need measurable disease, and again, she doesn't have measurable disease, so clinical trial eligibility hasn't been an option for her. Now that pertuzumab is available and TDM1, hopefully, you know, in the upcoming months will be available, certainly I think those are things we'll consider when we potentially make our next change in terms of our next therapy. So let's talk about your other patient. So she's another lady who's received multiple treatments for her deposited metastatic disease. Correct. And we've been treating her since 2006, I believe, was when we first met her. And she's responded to most of the therapy we've given, but eventually, you know, at certain points has progressed. Her situation was kind of interesting because she has lung as well as liver metastases. And there was a point in time, and I don't recall exactly what year it was, we actually went back and repeated a biopsy because the lung nodule seemed to be progressing not at the same rate as the liver. And I think this is a good example of why it's important to go back always to make sure that you biopsy at the time of metastatic diagnosis to confirm. But there are situations where we might do a biopsy at another point in time when it just doesn't feel like it's responding and reacting as we would expect. And we wanted to especially confirm the ERPR and HER2 in her situation because we were giving her targeted therapies and we didn't want to continue on if they weren't going to potentially be effective and also be sure she didn't have some sort of second primary malignancy, which it turned out she didn't. I guess that point is really important. The fact that right now in breast cancer, so much of our therapy, as you say, is driven by the ER estrogen receptor and HER2 status. And I guess almost always or usually it is the same in the metastasis, but sometimes I guess there's a change. Right. And I think it's really important because we've run into numerous situations, and this is many times patients who have been treated at another institution come to see us for a second opinion who never had a biopsy of the metastatic lesion. And you would hate to have not given them a targeted therapy if they could have been eligible for one. And you would also hate to have given them one when maybe they didn't. And I think especially the HER2 positive patients, because if you look back at how reliable our HER2 testing was 10 or 15 years ago, I think it was very different than how reliable our HER2 testing is now. So when we see a patient, for example, we had a patient not long ago who was ER positive. It was about 10 years from her original diagnosis presented with metastatic disease. Her primary cancer was labeled HER2 positive, but when we biopsied her metastatic lesion, it actually wasn't. I'm not sure that that was really a switch. I think it was more related to the fact that the HER2 testing is much more sensitive and much more accurate now than it was in the past. So I think it's really important to make sure that if it's at all feasible, that we biopsy whatever we can get so that we can get that information. 
So maybe we could focus in this lady on what was going on the last, well, actually in December 2010. That was the point at which she went on the clinical trial of TDM1. But what was her clinical situation before she started treatment? So her clinical situation has always been, fortunately in her case, completely asymptomatic. And so she works full-time, she's married, she doesn't have any kids, but she's been 100% functional and really has never been symptomatic from her disease. So she was really the perfect candidate to consider a clinical trial in because her performance status was so good, she didn't have any impact upon her organ function from her cancer. And so if we try a new drug and it works, obviously that's great. If you try a new drug and it doesn't, you really haven't lost much in terms of her clinical situation. You wouldn't have made her feel worse. And so she, as I said, all along has been very functional. So, but she did have liver and lung mets? She did. So she has a couple of things in her liver, which are relatively small. And then the lesions in her lung fluctuate somewhere between one to two centimeters. And there are several of them. But again, for her, not clinically significant, but obviously progressing. And so in the situation where we could see them growing on, I can't recall the therapy she was on prior to that, we could see them growing and it wasn't comfortable to not do anything despite the fact that she wasn't symptomatic. And I know that she's been treated at another institution to be able to get on this trial, but you've been in contact with her What's happened since she's been on TDM1 now, what, about a year and a half, huh? Yeah, so a year and a half, and she's been feeling great. Really, her primary side effect has been a little bit of mucositis, which, from her perspective, has not impacted her life at all. You know, well, things maybe don't taste as good, and maybe, you know, a few mouth sores here or there, but nothing that has clinically been significant. Otherwise, she, and I asked her specifically before I realized I was going to talk with you about this, but she said otherwise, she'd say that this treatment has been quite easy for her. And her disease continues to respond. The most recent one suggested there might be a little bit of progression. I don't know. She was going to see the medical oncologist last week, and I haven't heard back from her whether this was going to be a clinically significant progression or if it was just a small amount of growth in the lung nodule, again, which was the problem we were having to begin with. It was the lung disease, which seemed to be progressing for whatever reason, and the liver lesions were staying relatively stable. So I imagine she's experienced alopecia. What's going on with her hair right now? So she hasn't really noticed any significant change. Her hair's been thin, probably because she's had so many episodes where she's lost it and it's returned. So it's always been thin. And for her in particular, not that she would have not taken a treatment that caused hair loss, but that was one thing for her that was pretty important. If we had treatment that we thought would be equally as effective as a treatment that caused alopecia, she would choose the one that wouldn't cause alopecia. So your oncologist colleague, Dan Hayes, was at an education program we were doing recently, and he was talking about the cytotoxic in TDM1, metancine, because I guess the idea here is the antibody delivers the cytotoxic directly to the cell. And he was saying how they had studied the cytotoxic just giving it regularly, I don't know, 20 years ago, whatever, and it was extremely toxic. And yet these patients are receiving it as part of this antibody drug conjugate. They don't even really seem to have chemo side effects. Yeah, he actually was telling us about that just a couple weeks ago in our research meeting, and I was shocked. I didn't really realize that they had previously looked at this drug and said, oh my God, we can't use this in patients because it's just so toxic. I am amazed at how well she's doing. And 
She's had toxicity on other therapies, so it's not just that she's a patient who is destined to do well. She definitely had toxicity on other therapies that she's had. What do you think it's meant to her personally to be able to have this period of a year and a half without chemo side effects? Granted, you know, she was fortunately asymptomatic from the tumor, but she's had a lot of symptoms from the treatment over the years. What do you think it meant to her personally? Well, I mean, I think it's meant a huge amount to her personally that she's been able to have this period of time where she continues to work, she's been traveling, she's been able to spend time with her family. And while she has to go in and get treatment and think about her cancer, I think it's really allowed her time to just live her life, which has been great. Her mother, unfortunately, was recently diagnosed with breast cancer. And so she's been helping her mother navigate through that. And I think it's been really good for her to be able to be there and be supportive to her mother and help her and guide her through her treatment as well. So we've talked up to now mainly about metastatic HER2 positive disease. A lot of the excitement in the last six months has been in that arena. But as you mentioned, prior to that, there was a whole bunch of research information that came out in terms of adjuvant treatment, and you commented that you think you can see the effects in your own practice. I'd like to chat a little bit about adjuvant and neoadjuvant treatment in HER2-positive disease and how it's approached into your place. Maybe starting out with neoadjuvant treatment, what are the situations where you give systemic treatment before surgery, and how do you approach that in a HER2-positive patient? Right. So we like to, as a group, we'll review these patients all at our tumor board, make sure that everyone agrees what the plan may be. And we really want to typically give neoadjuvant to those patients who have a locally advanced cancer where we think it's potentially going to impact their surgical outcome, meaning make that patient a candidate for lumpectomy if they're not, or if they have bulky axillary disease, debulk it so that their surgical intervention will be easier. So most of the time we're looking at patients who are T2 or T3. Lymph node involvement or not, I think, is less of a debate in those patients that are HER2 positive because we're going to recommend adjuvant therapy to those patients anyway. And so there are some situations where we might say when we're in tumor board, well, it doesn't matter if we give chemo now or later because we're going to recommend it in either case. So if it allows the patients to perhaps maybe get genetic testing to make a final surgical decision, or there just are sometimes those patients who aren't ready to make a decision about lumpectomy versus mastectomy, where if we give the chemo first, it allows them a number of months to come to terms with it and make a more informed decision. And so we have a patient who has T2 disease, her lymph nodes were negative, and we're giving her neoadjuvant therapy. She's going to have bilateral mastectomy. She had already made that decision, but she wanted reconstruction. And just because of the way the timing worked out, it was better for us to give her chemo first and then have her reconstruction planned and scheduled a number of months in the future. So what kind of treatment did she receive? So we're actually giving her docetaxel and carboplatin in combination with trastuzumab because she was node negative. A young woman, node negative, relatively small tumor. Most of the medical oncologists in our group certainly would consider that a reasonable standard treatment. Avoid the anthracycline and use the docetaxel. So the much-discussed TCH regimen, what happened? Has she already been treated? 
She's in the midst of her treatment. How is she doing? She's doing okay. You know, I have to say, for young women, the TCH regimen seems to be a little bit more difficult than the older women for some reason. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if they're less fatigued to start off with, they're younger, and they're more active. I haven't been able to quite figure it out, but it seems, you know, we have a large number of patients we've treated, not large, but a number of patients we've treated with TCH, and it seems for whatever reason... My patients who are in their 60s seem to do a little better than my patients who are in their 40s. So what is the main problem you see? Yeah, so docetaxel, I think it's fatigue. I also think it's myalgias and arthralgias. And for some people, those can really be debilitating about a week later. And it, for some people, will knock them off their feet, and they'll be in bed, laying flat for three or four or five or six days. We definitely see neuropathy. I can't say that we see significantly more neuropathy, but I think there definitely is the potential that we could because we're giving longer, we're giving six cycles as opposed to four cycles of paclitaxel or 12 weekly doses. So, you know, I think neuropathy is obviously our other big concern. You know, it's interesting. I would say not less than 10 years ago, having a HER2 positive tumor was considered a bad thing, you know, as adverse prognosis. And now I kind of think that maybe it's the reverse. Absolutely. And I always, when I'm talking to patients about the receptor information and talking about our treatment, I always tell them I like to not label it good or bad because it is what it is. But absolutely, we can use, you know, targeted anti-ER therapy. We can use targeted anti-HER therapy. And when you look at it, when you sort of run the numbers, those patients probably have a much better prognosis than those patients who aren't positive. The other thing I hear about in terms of response on HER2-positive disease, we were talking about neoadjuvant therapy, is in either locally advanced, where it's a big tumor, or inflammatory breast cancer. And I guess these are not uncommonly HER2-positive. What have you seen in terms of response to treatment? Right. So we definitely see those patients who had bulkier disease to begin with who end up having a complete pathologic response. And I have to believe that that's the combination of the targeted HER therapy as well as the chemotherapy, because we know, for example, in those patients that are ER positive, they're not going to have nearly the same risk response as those patients who are going to get trastuzumab in combination with their chemotherapy. We have a patient who had a very large breast mass, I mean, encompassed her whole breast, and it changed during chemo. We gave her chemo first, and it changed during chemo, but there was still a big mass there at the time of her surgery. But at the time of her surgery, there was necrotic tissue and there wasn't any evidence that she had any active cancer, residual disease that was left there. That patient in particular had an isolated bone metastasis, which she had radiated, and now is probably five years out from that therapy with no evidence of disease. So, I, you know, no one's ever going to tell her we cured her, but she continues on trastuzumab and she was ER positive, so she continues on letrozole as well. So, yeah, I mean, when you say complete pathologic response, you're talking about not seeing cancer and surgery after the patient's had a tumor that's been treated. And I guess that's certainly not uncommon. Maybe up to half the patients have that. Absolutely. Absolutely. in those patients who are HER2 positive. In fact, I think sometimes we're almost disappointed when we find a little bit there because we have the expectation that they're all going to have a complete pathologic response. Now, what about on the other side, adjuvant therapy, when the systemic treatment is used after surgery? 
There's been a lot of debate, and there's not much debate in terms of whether or not to use anti-HER therapy, specifically trastuzumab, but about what to combine it with, specifically whether to use an anthracycline like doxorubicin or a non-anthracycline regimen like TCH that you described. How do you all approach that decision and advise patients about it? Right. So I think it very much depends upon the patient's stage of disease. And I think most of the medical oncologists that I work with really use that to help guide them. So if it's a patient that's got a HER2 positive stage one cancer, I think we're much more comfortable using TCH and avoiding the doxorubicin. Because if you look at it, you know, maybe we're talking about a little difference in terms of the efficacy, probably not a lot, but we're increasing risk of cardiomyopathy and heart problems related to the trastuzumab in combination. So those patients who have stage two or stage three disease, it's really still been our standard to give them AC followed by T along with trastuzumab. And there are some situations though where we've had conversations with patients and allowed the patient to help us decide you know, here's what we think sort of the gold standard regimen has been. I've had a couple of patients who were very worried about the cardiac risks associated with doxorubicin and trastuzumab, and it doesn't seem wrong for them to want to avoid it. And certainly we wouldn't give those patients a choice if we felt like clinically that was not okay. But, you know, we tend towards those patients who are node positive get ACTH, and those patients who are node negative, depending upon the size of the tumor, we would at least talk with them about doing TCH. We were talking about the difference in toxicity in the metastatic setting in terms of docetaxel and paclitaxel. And there is a regimen that's been piloted I don't think there's as much data as some of these other regimens looking at paclitaxel, trastuzumab, and I think it was particularly focused on older patients. Is that a regimen you all utilize? So absolutely. In fact, I had one older patient. She was probably in her, I'd say, mid-70s when she was diagnosed. She had an inflammatory cancer. There was no way we were going to give her an anthracycline And she received paclitaxel in combination with trastuzumab for 12 weeks, completely non-standard therapy. She had a complete pathologic response. And I have to say, we got her through it. I'm certain if we had tried to give her doxorubicin, we would have harmed her significantly or would have had to cut her therapy short. So there are situations where we will consider that. And I think from a patient's perspective, weekly paclitaxel is significantly easier than docetaxel. So you were talking about, you know, how things have gotten so much better since we started to use trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting, but there still are patients who develop relapse in spite of adjuvant chemo trastuzumab. And these new agents that we were talking about, pertuzumab and TDM1, are also being looked at in new adjuvant trials. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what we see in the adjuvant trials. What I think is going to be very interesting is to see what, if anything, they're going to add in terms of toxicity and how, if these patients have a much better prognosis now with the current therapy we have, can we make it that much better that it's going to be worth adding another agent? Or, you know, maybe it will be use lapatinib in place of trastuzumab. You know, we don't really know how that's going to play out, but when you look at what these patients' prognosis is, they have such a good prognosis after the current treatment we have, it's hard to know how we're going to make that even better. 
Well, the one thing I've heard people talk about is maybe we could make it better in terms of quality of life, what they're going to go through if TDM1 turns out to be as effective as, you know, TCH or something, or, you know, certainly you would expect to be a lot different in terms of quality of life going through treatment. Right. It sure sounds like it. I mean, it's hard for me to tell because I haven't don't clinically have a lot of experience with it, but it absolutely sounds like that's going to be a much less toxic regimen. I, I think the other thing, and I don't think we'll ever have the answer is, can we use anti-hormone therapy in combination with trastuzumab as adjuvant treatment and not give chemotherapy? This is where we really struggle when we present these patients in tumor board and they have a tumor that's less than a centimeter, but it's HER2 positive. Gee, do we give them chemo or not give them chemo? And everybody wants to not give them chemo, but yet no one's comfortable because there's no data to support giving them trastuzumab in combination with anti-ER therapy. And I don't know that we'll ever do those trials to have those answers. I next met with Dr. Lisa Carey, and to help better understand the rapid research progress being made in HER2-positive breast cancer, she also presented cases from her practice, beginning with a 36-year-old schoolteacher and mother of three who received preoperative treatment with chemotherapy and trastuzumab for a large HER2-positive ER-negative breast cancer. She actually was enrolled on the CALGB trial, 40601, which is a neoadjuvant trial that closed several months ago. And on that trial, she was randomized to receive paclitaxel and trastuzumab for 16 weeks. She went on to receive a modified radical mastectomy and actually had a pathologic complete response in her breast and in the axillary lymph nodes. And just to define that, by pathologic complete response, there were no tumor cells seen. There were no tumor cells seen either in the breast tissue or in any of the axillary lymph nodes that were removed. How big was the tumor when it started? It was over five centimeters when it started. So that's a really impressive reduction. One of the reasons we pay attention to response in the breast and in the lymph nodes in the armpit after neoadjuvant therapy is because we know that patients who have eradication of the tumor have a very good prognosis. In her case, she had eradication of the tumor, but we're not yet at the point where we can omit therapy or start tailoring it to response. So in this case, according to the standard, she did in fact receive the standard anthracycline postoperatively before finishing a year of trastuzumab and having radiation to her breast and her lymph nodes. She was doing well after that until this spring when she developed fevers and had a petechial rash, meaning sort of the little red bumps on her arms, and it turns out that she had acute leukemia. But the thing that was amazing to me was, first of all, of course, that she got acute leukemia, and I'm curious about your thoughts about whether you think it might have been related to the anthracycline, but the fact that she had acute promyelocytic leukemia, a very rare type of leukemia that's actually very, very treatable. Yeah, it is interesting. There are certain elements that make you think that a leukemia might be related to cancer therapy. You know, the first is whether it's happened in the setting of a drug that we know can do this. And in fact, anthracyclines do induce leukemias. And typically the time of onset is, you know, on average two to three years out after the anthracycline. So this is very consistent with that. Sometimes they have certain characteristics from the standpoint of abnormalities in the genes of the leukemic cells. 
And she actually did not have any of those characteristic findings that we all say that really is a marker of treatment-related leukemia. She didn't have that. She did, as you said, have a subtype of leukemia that we traditionally associate with a better prognosis that actually has its own biologic therapy. But in truth, there's very clear documentation you can get that kind of leukemia in the setting of treatment also. So I think that as a betting woman, I would guess that her chemotherapy played a role in her development of leukemia. You know, I mean, this is a story we've just heard about recently with Robin Roberts. So we all know that there are implications of the drugs that we give. You know, we make decisions based on risk and benefit, but the fact is even a small risk is still a risk for some people. And I still I think we should just point out, because we don't have the opportunity to talk too much about APL, because it's such an uncommon leukemia, but it is, I think, considered, as far as I know, curable. And she got kind of, an, as you say, it's pretty exciting, the biologic therapies that are using this disease, in this case, atra and arsenic trioxide. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And people may not realize there are very good uses of arsenic. How did she do with the treatment? She had a complete response to that treatment, and she's done really well. So let's talk about your 77-year-old lady. It's interesting, I see when she was first diagnosed, it was just as the adjuvant trastuzumab trials were being presented. Yeah, she actually, she wasn't a UNC patient then. She came to us later on, but her doctor told me that the, you know, the, you know, we all remember the huge, you know, excitement at ASCO when those trastuzumab trials were reported and, you know, just standing ovations and so much excitement. And we all went home and immediately adopted because, I mean, there wasn't early or late adoption. I mean, it was everybody. This patient really was very uncomfortable with the whole healthcare system. I think she'd been relatively outside of regular healthcare her whole life, and then presented with a locally advanced breast cancer and really didn't have a relationship with a doctor and was, I think, mistrustful from the very beginning. So her story was very interesting in that she had agreed to have a lumpectomy, which of course assumes that you have radiation therapy, and I'm sure that was explained to her, but then afterwards she declined radiation, which of course puts her at very high risk for local recurrence. She also declined any systemic therapy after she got some chemo, but she did not get the trastuzumab that we were all so excited about. So I think, you know, in truth, she was a patient who was uncertain about her relationship with her physicians. But, you know, she did, in fact, relapse in her breast. And pretty soon after. Yep, yep. It didn't take her. So she was diagnosed one year, I think it was a little over a year later, when in her breast the cancer came back, which was not, you know, enormously surprising given that she hadn't had very much therapy and it was a high risk tumor. They radiated her and that responded nicely to the radiation. But I think they again tried to offer her trastuzumab, her two targeted based therapy, and she declined it. What a shame. And went another year. <laughs> Yeah, you're right, because at that point, she had no evidence of disease outside of the breast. So it really was a failure of kind of a multimodality therapy or what we would consider to be our convention. There's a reason we do this. But a year later, she came up, and at that point when it came back, it was in a radiated field, and it was clearly inoperable. And that's when she finally moved on to systemic anti-HER2 therapy. But interestingly, she still wouldn't take the IV form. So she wouldn't take the conventional first-line treatment with trastuzumab and a chemotherapy would have been our norm. So she received capecitabine and lapatinib, which we would normally consider sort of a second-line treatment. And this was, at that point, still just a disease in the skin? Yeah, it was skin, and it wrapped around her chest wall onto her back. Wow, that's not Quite good. extensive, yeah, yeah. Was she having symptoms from it? 
She was. It was eroding and, you know, bleeding and things like that. And wow. she was the kind of patient that wouldn't show things to her family members. So I think things would get to a pretty far along state before she would bring it to anyone's attention. What was her sort of psychosocial background? Was she working? What was her family situation? So, well, she had actually unbelievably engaged daughters. So she was living independently and had worked, you know, previously as a sort of unskilled worker. I can't remember exactly the nature of it. But she had really terrific daughters who took great care of her. She had a substantial number of comorbidities. She had diabetes with underlying diabetic complications, including vascular disease and some baseline neuropathy that got far worse after her adjuvant taxane. And she really was incapable of working by the time this all happened. Her social circumstances, you know, I think were complicated by her own reluctance to call attention to her healthcare needs. But when she would engage, she had this incredible family, and they were key to all of her care, really. So she got capecitabine lapatinib a little earlier than she might have, and what happened? Well, you know, it worked for a while. They tried to get her off of the capecitabine because I think she didn't care for the side effects that she did have with it. And so they tried to leave her on maintenance lapatinib, and that didn't last very long. So she progressed again, and so they re-added the capecitabine. But at that point, it was already progressing in lungs and lymph nodes as well as her cutaneous disease, and that's when they sent her to us. So before you go on, as long as we brought up the issue of lapatinib and capecitabine lapatinib, what kind of side effects do you typically see? What do you see with her? What kind of patient education do you do for people going on this regimen? Yeah, do you know, it's interesting because it's an all-oral regimen, so it's very popular with patients. However, it's not necessarily the easiest of regimens. Both the capecitabine and the lapatinib have significant GI toxicities with, you know, diarrhea particularly. And this patient had some hand-foot syndrome, you know, where their hands can turn quite red and be quite painful, which... You know, what I've found is it almost manifests in these patients who have a little bit of underlying neuropathy as worsened neuropathy. You know, a patient with no neuropathy, it tends to act more like a rash, but in patients like her, it tends to be much more painful. You know, she was having both the GI toxicity and having difficulty with hand-foot syndrome. Just to complete that, what do you say to patients on Cape Cytobine Lapatinum in terms of when to take it as it relates to food? Do you sort of follow the Bible bottom line, or what do you tell them for practical purposes? You know, we actually do tell them to follow the bottom line just because it gets very complicated. And, you know, you're, of course, mentioning, you know, the value-added meal concept, right? If you take it with a Big Mac, you may only need half the amount of, of drug. And I think the problem is it's very difficult to predict exactly what kind of additional exposure to the drug one might get if you kind of wash it down with a Big Mac. So typically we do ask them to take it away from food. So maybe you can take us up to the point in which she was put on the clinical trial. I know she got some other chemo and trastuzumab. What happened there? Yeah, so we put her on venerelbine trastuzumab. So she did accept some traditional intravenous therapy, but she really didn't tolerate it again because of the neuropathy problem. And then a different chemotherapy backbone, which worked for a little while, was gemcitabine, but then she progressed. We were actually fortunate in that we were opening at that point. We were actually quite enthusiastic about getting her away from chemotherapy. She was becoming increasingly dependent on growth factors for maintenance of her white count. And we participated in a trial of TDM1 plus pertuzumab. And she actually enrolled in that trial. You know, and TDM1, of course, being trastuzumab, 
with a cytotoxic kind of attached to the HER2 targeted antibody. So I always think of it as a Trojan horse approach to cancer therapy because the trastuzumab basically delivers the chemotherapy directly into the HER2 positive cells, which means sort of two things. One is that it's more effective against the cancer cells because they're getting kind of a direct injection of a drug that's a pretty good chemotherapy drug. And you spare the rest of the body from much of the expected toxicity because the drug is being delivered explicitly into the HER2-positive cells. So she received that drug plus pertuzumab, the drug we mentioned earlier, which is a HER2-targeted antibody. So it was a one-two punch against the HER2 component of this with, a, I think, what's likely to be for the future, you know, the safest way of delivering chemotherapy that we can do. So I want you to review some of the information we know about these two agents. But before that, I'm just kind of curious, what was it like to present going on a trial to her? Sounds like she wasn't too excited about a lot of things. How did she feel about being on a clinical research trial? You know, it's a great question. And it really does speak to, you know, our experience with her kind of speaks to what happens over time as patients get a sense of being cared for by a team of people that they learn to trust. I mean, she really... You know, she had developed a relationship with her referring oncologist. So by the time I met her, she already had moved past the part where she really was mistrustful of the drugs and of the side effects. And I think genuinely believed that her cancer team was there on her behalf. And you're absolutely right. For many patients, particularly those that start mistrustful, a clinical trial is almost something they can't wrap themselves around. If you start with mistrust, then that's exactly where it's going to be manifested the most strongly. On the other hand, you know, at that point, there was already emerging literature about TDM1 and pertuzumab. We all had some familiarity with both of these drugs and had a sense of general safety. I mean, the main question for this study was, you know, the combination of them. And she was quite enthusiastic about getting away from chemo. I think she was pretty tired of chemotherapy. And this was a way of trying that. And she knew that if it was something that she didn't tolerate, then we simply wouldn't leave her on it. And her family was very instrumental in this. You know, I think it really helps. She wasn't ever there by herself. There was always a group of people there. You know, she has three daughters. And there was a lot of conversation that went on. So maybe you can describe what her situation was when she entered this trial. Where was the tumor and how symptomatic was it? So at that point, it again, you know, her main symptomatology was always intercutaneous disease, which would erode through the skin and it smelled badly and it was bloody and it would mess up her clothing. And it was very difficult to dress because, you know, it wasn't like, it's not a limb where you can sort of wrap a gauze around it. It was across her whole chest wall. And so I think she found that very distressing. That was her main symptom. She didn't have much by way of pain. She did have pulmonary involvement, but she was not symptomatic from that standpoint. So she was actually relatively well. I have to say the biggest problem that she had that was symptomatic was actually her vascular disease. Hmm. She had very, yeah, emerging, you know, over the course of the years of her cancer care, her vascular disease became, you know, a much bigger problem. This is peripheral or cardiac or both? Peripheral. Hmm. So what happened on the TDM1 pertuzumab? She had a great response. I mean, she really had a terrific response. So her disease really healed up, you know, across the chest wall. She had a fairly substantial soft tissue defect. I mean, it was very nodular, but the disease itself was no longer palpable. It became quite difficult to determine what was sort of scarring and hyperpigmentation from the sort of bad disease involvement and how much was disease. But Essentially, it healed up completely, and so it really just felt like a sort of lumpy chest wall. 
And any side effects from the treatment? None that we could tell, actually. She did really, really well. So her cardiac evaluations were always normal. She never had any symptoms from it until the very end when she interestingly developed. So she had been on it. Oh, my goodness. She she was on that therapy for a year and a half, I want to say. And then she sort of interestingly developed hand-foot syndrome, which I found that surprising. That's not a common side effect of either of those drugs. And she'd been on them for, you know, 18 months, so it was really particularly surprising. But it was pretty clear. Her hands turned very red. She obviously started with neuropathy, but her hands turned bright red and became quite painful. What happened then? Well, we took her off of the study, and she and I made a deal that as soon as her cancer progressed again, we would put her back on her two targeted therapy and minimize the chemotherapy component of it. And I've been following her ever since, and she has not had significant progression since. So she's remained off therapy more or less since that time. I think there are a lot of people saying, wow, right now, (laughs) (laughs) including me. I'm guessing or assuming she had hair loss while she was getting conventional chemotherapy. Did she? And what happened with her hair on the TDM1 pertuzumab? Yeah, she did not have hair loss. Wow. Again, wow. What's it been like to take care of her? What's it like to see her nowadays? It's always very entertaining. I have a couple of these patients who, for one reason or the other, you know, their disease was difficult to manage. Then there was sort of some seminal event. They had great response. And I actually had a patient on the very first bevacizumab trial when it was capecitopine bevacizumab. And a patient who had a complete response and got septic and had to come off therapy because she developed gangrenous cholecystitis while she was on therapy and was very, very ill for a long time. And I said, we're okay. As soon as your cancer grows again, I can't give you back that bevacizumab because at that point it was investigational, but we'll put you back on capecitabine. And she's never progressed. And that was, you know, seven or eight years ago. You you have a few of these patients. This particular patient, I expect at some point will progress again, but she just simply hasn't. And, you know, they almost get giddy about it. You know, they come in and I say, listen, everything looks fine. And they say, you know, you keep telling me I'm going to progress. I said, yes, I still think you're going to progress, but you haven't done it yet. And they giggle and mosey off out the door again. Yeah, and I guess, you know, could be that in the long run, what's going to be the most life-threatening to her is her vascular disease. Well, that's right. And, you know, there is an argument to be made. I mean, we all have these anecdotes, and nobody knows exactly what's going on. I mean, we all have the conventional wisdom of metastatic disease is incurable, and metastatic disease always is going to progress at some point. But the truth is that we all have anecdotes of these patients where, you know, something happened. And I remember my first patient, I would tell the story and my friends would say, you know, it was the sepsis, you know, it was a combination of well-delivered drugs that had gotten her to, you know, essentially micrometastatic disease. And then she got septic and her immune system kicked in and that put her over the edge. I mean, you you have these sorts of things that you wonder about. I mean, this particular patient the dual HER2 targeting plus the cytotoxic took her from, I mean, you know, all of her previous lines of therapy had not been particularly effective. This took her to, I wasn't sure what was disease and what was scar. And she stayed like that for 18 months. She came off not because of progression, but because of a side effect. And it may well be, particularly with these oncogenically addicted tumors, that if you can get them, you can get them to that last micrometastatic cell. And sometimes that's all, maybe our conventional wisdom isn't so smart. Well, when you ask people to present cases, a lot of times they will pick extraordinary cases like this and understanding that this doesn't happen all the time or that often. I guess it's important to know it happens sometimes. And 
Sounds like it's not a rare occurrence on some of these new anti-hurt therapies. So why don't we talk a little bit more about them? First, maybe we can talk more about pertuzumab, just FDA approved. Likely people are ordering it now. I'm curious whether you are. What do we know about it? Well, you know, pertuzumab is a terrific drug. It's a great addition. You know, it is similar in many respects to trastuzumab. It's an antibody directed against HER2, but it's directed to a different part of the part of HER2 that's outside of the cell. And it interferes with the one of the ways that the HER2 receptor works is by interacting with related receptors that are also on the outside of the cell. And that's usually in reaction to a particular stimulation of one of the other receptors that then partners up with HER2 and it gets sort of growth and proliferation pathways going on the inside of the cell. So pertuzumab binds really to the part of that receptor that's flapping in the breeze and normally would associate with the other receptors, what's called the heterodimerization domain. Because it binds to a different part of the receptor than trastuzumab, it seems like it, you know, in truth, what we have recently found out and the basis for the recent FDA approval of pertuzumab is that if you are starting with chemotherapy plus trastuzumab for metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer, which is the standard, if you add pertuzumab, you will get, you know, a substantial improvement in outcome, at least from the standpoint of progression with the addition of the second one, probably because it's not acting just like trastuzumab. It's acting still in the same part of the receptor, but away from it. I mean, it's interfering with a different process that that receptor is involved with. So you get kind of a dual targeting, two is better than one kind of effect. And I guess from what we've seen, it doesn't seem to have much of any toxicity. Is that your take? It's another monoclonal antibody. It's another monoclonal antibody. It doesn't have much additional toxicity. Specifically, it doesn't seem to do much to the heart, recognizing that patients in these trials were typically selected. But there haven't been too many worrisome elements of this particular antibody. So I think like a lot of what we want out of targeted therapies is you want them to work and be less toxic. And it seems to fit that profile. I guess the one toxicity I've heard people talk about is financial, of having to use two antibodies. And I've heard the question raised, well, maybe pertuzumab is just better than trastuzumab. Maybe we could just use that. But it does seem there's some kind of synergy going on. Yeah, no, and I think that's pretty clear. And pertuzumab by itself doesn't look like it is, you know, particularly effective. There were single agent studies that were done. It wasn't without efficacy, but it wasn't blowing people away. I think the fact is that the part of what we do that relates to the financial implications is really important nowadays. And it goes without saying that if you take a trial of a thousand patients and you find that two HER2 targeted drugs was better than one in aggregate, the truth is in some patients, neither one worked. In some patients, they needed one. Other patients may have needed the other. And probably only a minority really benefited from both as opposed to one or the other or neither. And the challenge for us is to figure out who those are. Because then, you know, if you can figure it out, then you can invest the money in the patients who are truly going to benefit from the dual targeting. And sadly, we don't have that information at this point. So we tend to treat in aggregate. One thing I've heard people talking about is the trial, the so-called Cleopatra trial that was first reported in December, looking at this combination of pertuzumab and trastuzumab, combined it with docetaxel, which is something Mm -hmm. people don't use that much in metastatic disease. And it was in the first line setting for people who had never had anti-HER therapy for metastasis, although they could have had it for adjuvant. And that's the way the FDA label 
reads right now. First of all, are you attempting to use it and are you using it like that? Yes and yes. I have to say my preference would be a different taxane. I usually use weekly paclitaxel as opposed to docetaxel in that setting, in part because I think it's an easier drug and it's definitely a cheaper drug. But I am using it in exactly that way. But again, we're all sort of getting our feet wet with this because I'm still having the conversations with our pharmacy about getting it routinely provided. I guess the other issue, too, is there are lots of patients out there who've had multiple lines of treatment for metastatic HER2-positive disease, trastuzumab with different kinds of chemo, for example. And patients like that can kind of run out of options to get lapatinib, et cetera. I know from surveying people, oncologists in practice, as well as investigators, that there's an interest in trying pertuzumab in patients like that. As you say, not clear whether it's going to get paid for. Would you treat a patient in second line and beyond if you could get it paid for? Yes, I would. I think one of the things that's been sort of demonstrated in both the neoadjuvant studies and the metastatic trials, and I have to say I can't think of one that didn't find essentially the similar thing. The first is, even after progression, it's worth continuing HER2 targeting. And the second is that two drugs look better than one drug when it comes to targeting this particular pathway. And that's true whether pertuzumab is the second drug or whether lapatinib is the second drug. So now we have this major change in the management of these patients out there in terms of pertuzumab being available. But the other thing, and it's interesting, this patient ended up getting both in this trial, is trastuzumab emtansine, TDM1. And we just saw some very interesting data at the ASCO meeting looking at that. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about what it is and what was seen in the study. Oh, yeah. This is, a, you know, among sort of these exciting things that were presented, it was at the plenary session. And essentially, you know, for example, this patient received capecitabine lapatinib. We talked a little bit about the side effects of that particular regimen. In the AMELIA study, which was presented at ASCO a couple weeks ago, was a head-to-head comparison of capecitabine lapatinib with TDM1 all by itself. So again, this is in patients, for the most part, who are in the second line, although there was about 10% of them who were technically in the first line, but had relapsed within a short time of receiving adjuvant trastuzumab. And really, it was the win-win of therapeutic trials because the TDM1 outperformed the chemotherapy, lapatinib treatment from the standpoint of effectiveness, and also from the standpoint of toxicity, which is not to say that it has no toxicity, but it has relatively minor ones. And to be honest, they're the kind of toxicities that the patients typically are not too bothered by. They're things like low platelet counts, which we notice, but they don't for the most part. And, you know, a little bit of liver inflammation, I think, were the two main ones that were more in the TDM1 arm compared to the capecitabine lapatinib. And in terms of those toxicities, as you mentioned, it seems like in the patients that does occur, and it's a paper toxicity, so to speak, that they feel well, do the platelets get low enough that you normally have to do anything about it? And what about the liver enzymes? No, they usually are relatively mild. Now, they did have, you know, some that reached, you know, we do the grading categories, but the likelihood of getting the kind of low platelets that would require worry, where you'd counsel them to, you know, be careful about falling and things like that, or that they would get those rashes, the patients get the petechial rashes, was actually very, very low and quite unusual. So typically it's, they're low enough that it gives us pause, but not enough to get too excited. And similarly, the transaminases, you know, they go up high enough that they would be taken off of the study, for example, you know, say in the hundreds is not frequent, but not unheard of. But really, 
significant hepatic dysfunction is reported seldom with this drug. So sort of adding one plus one, you would think now we have data in terms of trastuzumab, chemotherapy plus pertuzumab, it's FDA approved, people are going to start figuring out how to use it. You have TDM1, which a lot of people don't think about as chemo, but it actually is chemo with trastuzumab. It just doesn't seem to have the chemotoxicity. So what about this combination that this lady received? It seems like it makes sense. Instead of giving chemo, the normal way you give it through TDM1 and yeah. add pertuzumab, where's that heading? Oh, you know, we'll see. You know, first off, TDM1 is not yet approved. And I think that that's likely to be, you know, I would put a, a small wager on about six months from now. But when it's available, there's going to be a great temptation to start combining these things. And I think, again, it just depends on what you're able to get paid for. I think without the data being out there, I think the insurers are going to be unlikely to be willing to let that combination go forward too often. But hold your breath because the trials are coming. Yeah. And, in, you know, a lot of times things that make a lot of sense that people want to do, or maybe there's issues in terms of reimbursement. And one, you know, you mentioned the fact that now in the last few years, we've kind of seems like we've gotten into the mode of using anti-her therapy in metastatic disease for a long time through different lines of therapy, you know, maybe indefinitely. And one of the questions I've heard from oncologists is, well, in other words, so trastuzumab might be continued even if the disease is getting worse and just switching the chemo. Would you consider in somebody who's getting pertuzumab, trastuzumab, and chemo, keeping the pertuzumab and trastuzumab going and switching the chemo if you could get it paid for? Yeah, I mean, I think if there were no reimbursement issues, then I think for many of these patients, there's certainly evidence that particularly in patients who initially responded to trastuzumab, that if you switch out the cytotoxic, they will continue to do well or they can continue to do well, and it's better than stopping the HER2-targeted therapy. I don't have any reason to think that it should be any different in a patient who did well with dual HER2-targeted therapy. But again, you know, we don't live in a world where these things are free, and so we do have to consider the cost of them. You know, I think this is something that has been adopted from a practice standpoint in terms of the trastuzumab part because, A, there's data that it does work, and B, they're so well tolerated, these drugs, right? If they had a significant toxicity profile and you think about it, you know, our community really doesn't like to use doublet cytotoxics. Well, why don't we use doublet cytotoxics? You know, A, there's no data that it works, and B, it definitely adds to toxicity. So with these drugs, you know, we don't have data with pertuzumab per se, but we certainly have reasonable expectation of very low toxicity with these drugs. So in breast cancer and a lot of other cancers, there's the thinking that you find something that works in metastatic disease and then bring it into the adjuvant setting. What about these types of agents, TDM1 and pertuzumab in adjuvant trials? Yeah, well, so which is going to win is a great question. TDM1 and pertuzumab are both obviously in adjuvant trials or trials in development. And, you know, we will see. I think the beauty of the TDM1, which I have to say the adjuvant trials in development for TDM1 that are of greatest interest to many of us are simply because this is the opportunity to get away from the separate cytotoxic. You know, so if you imagine, we've long struggled with this idea of what do you give to a low-risk HER2-positive breast cancer patient? You know, you've got sort of, you have zero and you have 60 and nothing in between, right? Our approved regimens are 
polychemotherapy plus trastuzumab, and they're long and they're toxic. And we just don't know about kind of a lesser approach or a less toxic approach. And to be honest, there's some data that there's enough additional risk, even for a stage one HER2 positive breast cancer, that many of these patients are getting more or less the same chemotherapy regimens as their sisters with stage three breast cancer. So this is a recognized problem and a sort of hole in the field in terms of our knowledge base. You know, TDM1, if it turns out to be as effective in the adjuvant setting as we hope it will be based on how good it is in the metastatic setting, is an opportunity to give very effective therapy that does, as you say, include a cytotoxic, just a cytotoxic light. You know, it's a kinder, gentler cytotoxic. And it wouldn't surprise me if that was something that would be very well-tolerated and effective for particularly lower-risk HER2-positive breast cancer. Maybe that's all we need to give. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our faculty, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Law for this special HER2-positive edition of Breast Cancer Update.